2: Welcome to the second episode of A Spy in Exile Inside the IRA. This is a series of interviews with the former MI5 and Special Branch agent Martin McGartland who infiltrated the provisional IRA in the late 80s and early 90s in Northern Ireland due to the serious threat on Martin's life. This has been recorded over a secure connection and his voice has been altered to protect his identity. If you missed episode one, the making of Agent Carl, it's now available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other audio apps. To make it more direct, were you involved in murder within the IRA? My
3: not, I actually spent... Probably best part of two years inside the IRA. Um, when I was inside the IRA, all the jobs, jobs that I actually prevented, which, which the IRA would refer to as operations or ops, ops, was I think 40 or 45. Now that would have been bombings, shootings, bombings where they're going to put a bomb on top of a car, which they would call like a limpet mine. Bombs where they're going to put a bomb, uh, you know, on a vehicle to actually blow up uh, army, police. Obviously, surpassed pass by bombs that they were going to put under cars or shootings where they're actually going to go and shoot police officers, virtually like in broad daylight in the street. Now, the whole thing that I actually was inside the IRA for that two-year period, one person was targeted as a result of, uh like information. That I actually had known about probably about, um, it was probably about four weeks before a guy called Tony Harrison. Tony Harrison was a black um, paratrooper. And what had happened was he was going with a a local guard from East Belfast and he was going to a house in Nevis Avenue on the one to like special branch or me. He was actually a British soldier. We only found out later on that he was actually, he he was actually like, you know, he was either on leave or he wasn't actually supposed to even be in Belfast. But what happened was, he actually was going to arrange, um, I think he was getting married to this girl in East Belfast. And at one point, he had been stationed in um, Palace Barracks. I was contacted by somebody who I, I I just referred to him as Jimmy because I couldn't name him for any legal reason. And what he done was, this Jimmy guy, who was a member of the IRA, had came to me and he said, look, Marty, will you do us a favour? Will you drive me over to East Belfast? And I said, you'll take over. And it transpired that he had been asked to actually go over to target a soldier. Now, when he said soldier, I presumed it was a UDR soldier, because one thing that you need to uh, take into account is nobody's soldiers actually live in any part of Belfast, let alone East Belfast, what happens is, they, um, obviously, they go on a tour for six months, and they stay in the barracks, and then obviously they go back home, and then a new a group of soldiers comes in for six months, and that's the way it works. So when he mentioned soldier, I presumed he met, obviously, a UDR soldier. So long story short, he asked me to take him to East Belfast. Now, when I took him to East Belfast, yeah, he took me along um, Hollywood Road, I was driving the car, and he was actually interested in a bus stop. Now, the bus stop, from what I was led to believe, this uh, soldier, because we didn't know nothing else, was either going to be getting on a bus or getting off a bus at that that bus stop. After we passed the bus stop, this Jimmy guy had said to me, look, go up here, turn left, blah, blah, blah. And he took me into the streets, which is in behind, obviously, the Hollywood Road. Now, one of the streets is Nevis Avenue. Now that's obviously uh, important to this story because it turns out later on that Nevis Avenue was the street actually where this soldier was going to. Now Burning Man at this stage, no one knew he was a British soldier. No one knew that the guy actually was like didn't even live in uh Belfast or Northern Ireland and more importantly, no one knew that he was a black soldier. Now, the reason why that's significant for him was because he would have been easy to identify. So no one knew this at the stage. Um, Jimmy got me to drive up and down, must be three or four different streets in around there, one of them in Nevis Avenue. I dropped them back to West Belfast. And almost immediately after I dropped him back, I went and contacted my handler, Felix, explained what happened. And when I contacted Felix, he said to me, which wasn't unusual, look, I need, you need you need to come and meet us. Now when I go to meet them, I always went to mostly the same place. Now some people may think, oh, well, that's a bit suicidal," but I always met them at the top of the creaky road. It was safe because obviously it was it was a Protestant area. And when I went, Felix and another special branch man who was on all of my handlers, asked me to take them firstly like meter by meter and explain exactly what we had done earlier that that day with his Jimmy. So I went and done it. Same again. Went to the bus stop. Drove up. Drove into the streets. Felix was sitting in the car, taking loads of notes while the other special bunch of was driving, asking me questions. And I'll never forget this. This is something very, very significant. Something happened when we were doing all of this checking and trying to get information and stuff and all like that. Mm-hmm. We drove up one of the streets. It was close to an Avenue. And Felix had said to the driver to stop the car. And I looked, and he was really, really agitated because there was a, a Montego car. But the Montego car was a, an RUC, armoured, sort of like, uh, it was an unmarked police vehicle. And he was going absolutely ballistic, because that car shouldn't have been parked there, because it was on its own. Somebody could have actually put a bomb under it, blah, blah, blah. blah. So he, he, he made notes of that, the registration number, the house number it was outside of. After he'd done that, we drove around all the streets. again. Once that was all done, him again, brought me back. I get in my car, went back. And they went back to, obviously, Castle Ray. And their job was then, from that minute, was to actually chat with the UDR and also probably with the RUC to find out if any personnel lived in those streets that I had identified to them, yeah? Because we didn't know what street it was. It was a bus stop in them streets. And they went back and they'd done their stuff. So as far as I was concerned, if there was a UDR soldier in there or if it happened to be a OEC man who they probably the the IRA were actually like you know probably trying to give me a bit of a you know bomb steer then in all likeliness the special branch would actually like be able to identify that person i heard nothing more about it then what happened was a short period later i actually now now one thing you need to remember here is it's very important that obviously you take into account this this is um at a time where all the other operations i had stopped and as i say there was 45 that i counted and probably a few more that have probably never even probably taken into account had all been either stopped or they had been prevented and something had happened but when i went to um at that time i was actually like you know in a cell who uh, it, it was a guy called spud murphy who was actually in charge of the cell and Spud Murphy was looking after a sale, which was like heavily involved in like um, shootings and bombings and stuff and all like that. And I actually had been told by Spud Murphy that um, I actually had to like drive cars and stuff and all like that. That was my main job. They wanted me to drive because of the reason I said you had a driving license, blah, 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 blah. And I usually went to meetings with Spud Murphy and the rest of the team, which was like the sale act of surf shoot. One day, I actually got, um, I'm not going to work, someone came to to, to the house and said, look Marty, you have to go to a meeting that same afternoon. Now that wasn't unusual. That happened all the time. And the reason why that happened for was because Spud may have been tied up doing other things. He actually, you know, probably couldn't organize things way in advance or he had other things coming up where he had to squeeze things in between. So I went to this meeting. And when I walked into the meeting, Spud Murphy said to me, Marty, this isn't a meeting. You're going to go with them too. And it turns out that the two people who he was pointing to, you know, the blood drained from me, because I knew these two people were top in, in this team. They were top sort of like, um, they, they were shooters, people who was involved in just basically shootings of people. And when they were involved, I mean, you know, if they were targeting you, unless something drastically went wrong, or unless something actually happened, where it was called off, that would be the only thing that would actually prevent the target from actually being murdered. So he said, you're going with these two people. Even at that stage, I didn't have a clue where the fuck it was going or what it was doing. Now, the reason why Spud Murphy done that for was because at that time, he knew, or he suspected, that I was one of a few people who must have been passing information on. Because a small cell, like I mentioned to you earlier on, people can actually like you know, it's an elimination process. If we six people or seven people or eight people, it's easier to identify the person who's caught them or the person who's actually leaking information and it won't be over hundred people or even 80 people. So that was the reason why they brought me to this meeting that never was. I actually went, I had to get, drive the car and you know, I was been told, look, to, you know, drive here, drive here, drive the other. Well, when I get into Belfast Centre, I thought, well, fuck me, where am I going? Blah, 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 blah. It turns out that when I was told to drive through Belfast, yeah, heading over towards the Hollywood Road, the closer I get to the Hollywood Road, obviously alarm bells started in my mind going, fuck me, I hope I'm not home where I think I'd been, obviously, only a few weeks ago. And it turns out that I was actually asked to drive the gunmen over to the job that I had actually tipped the special branch off about only a matter of weeks before. And that's how that all came about. So in answer to your question, yes, I was actually involved in an IRA operation where a person was actually murdered. But like I've said on the John Moore program, and I've also said on the um, book, and every other interview I've done about it over the years, that I was in a position where there was no way I couldn't, of I, I could have actually not actually went along with it because other than me, man says, "Hang on, Spud, hang on, Spud, I've got a confession. I'm actually working for Special Branch." But I think at that stage, Spud mm. must have uh, suspected me of working for Special Branch because I told another story. I'll go back to this Tony Harrison thing again, but I told another story in the past where I actually went to a meeting with Spud's team that I was a member of and when I walked into the meeting they were all very very suspe- su- surprised to see me there and they were looking at me as if like basically like, I had like two heads and one of them said to me, Marty don't worry about it, we'll buy your wreath. Now I've told that story a hundred times and that's exactly what they said to me and that was all around the same time as all this was going on but uh, as I stress to you, I mean, my memory is that the Tony Harrison thing happened in June 1991. Now, you have to put this all into context. I was kidnapped in August the 8th, 1991, only weeks after that. At that time, like I said, the fact that Spud sent for me to go to a meeting wasn't unusual. That happened all the time. But to get me to go to a meeting, to tell me the minute that I walk into the house, Marty, this isn't a meeting. You're going with Easons on a job. At that stage... That's basically when I realized that, you know, the game was as close to being completely opposite ever could be. But remember that I actually was asked by special branch to infiltrate the IRA at the age of 19 and 1989. So 1990, 1991, maybe two years. So everything that I did in that two year period up until that time, June 1991, I was in a position where all that stuff. The IRA and its internal security team and other people in the IRA were starting to go. Who was involved in that? Tick 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 tick. Who was involved in that? Tick tick tick. Marty 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 Marty. My name keeps coming up left, right, and centre. And and one thing I want to mention too, Tony Harrison. It was me who told John War on the BBC and program the BBC Informer program about the Tony Harrison case. And the reason why I told him for it was because one. I would never, ever live with myself if I never actually had told the whole truth about my whole story. Two, I could have easily said nothing, but again, that's not me. You you know, the consequences of me telling that story in some people's eyes will be, well, you know, he's an out thug like them and he's involved in terrorism, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, that isn't the way it is simply because, I mean, you have to put yourself into a situation where you're in a room with people who are involved in the IRA and they're saying to you, you're going with these people. So in other words, I would regard it as like, jurist. Some people say, well, don't talk shit. but well, I would say, no, listen, what else could it be? I mean, what do you do? Do you say, oh, hang on, I'm not going, or, oh, do you know what, I mean? or what do you do when you're on your way over to wherever this job is because I didn't know where this job was until virtually I started to drive through Belfast City Centre and then obviously like, when I was driving towards Hollywood and I thought fuck me I've been here with Jimmy and then I've been here with Special Branch and Felix and stuff Not only fucking like a few weeks before and then obviously it doesn't take obviously like you know fucking Einstein to work out well hang on this is no coincidence so what I'm saying to you is the answer is yeah I was involved in something where the IRA actually did murder somebody but on the basis that I was sort of like duped into going to a meeting, but it never was a meeting. For those
2: who aren't aware of who Tony Harrison was, he was a 21-year-old soldier from North London who in March 1992 was deployed with his unit, C Company, on a four-month emergency tour of duty in County Tyrone. On June the nineteenth, nineteen ninety-two, Private Harrison was off duty and visiting his fiancé, who lived close to Palace Barracks. His presence there had been seen by the IRA, and pretending to be postman, a murder team forced their way into his fiancé's house, and Private Harrison was shot dead. Was there any chance, Martin, that Tony Harrison's life could have been saved in any way?
3: No, because I'll tell you for why. Lots of things have actually come to light over the years since it happened. And there was a court case, and I'll just give you a little bit of a summary of what happened. Unknown to me, obviously at the time, I'm talking about back in 1991, the IRA were using people to gather intelligence for them. They were using people and all sorts of organizations examples travel agents taxi uh depots taxi drivers people who work for department of health and social services people who work in the driving license agencies etc 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 and all known to me at the time and it's came to light since the person who set tony harrison up to be murdered was a taxi driver he was arrested and he's since been convicted of it that tony harrison either told the taxi driver that he was a British soldier or the taxi driver actually must have gleaned information out of him that made him suspicious i suspect that tony harson must have told him because one thing i know about the irs right they wouldn't go targeting somebody unless they were 110 percent sure that the person was what they would regard as a legitimate target so i suspect that sadly Tony Harrison had told the taxi driver who he was thinking the taxi driver was actually like, you know, an innocent person, but it just so happens. And unfortunately for Tony Harrison, the taxi driver was an IRA intelligence officer. This guy went to court. I think he called the guy Thompson again. Don't quote me on that, this is all memory. I think the guy was called Thompson. And the guy actually got um, jailed for quite a few years. And he had said, and again, this is memory, that he had met a childhood friend who you knew was in the IRA, and th- that mom was coming to meet him, I think it was once a week or whatever, to get information from him. My understanding was that, um, again, from the information I've gleaned since, that Tony Harrison wasn't even supposed to be in that area. Nobody from the army was allowed them. The areas were classed at that time as out of bounds. So I, I get the impression that Tony Harrison one didn't go to get permission to go into East Belfast. Or if he had went to go and get permission, he would have been told no. So I think he just went in because it was like he wanted to be with his girlfriend. He was going to actually, you know, sort out his wedding, blah, 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 blah. That's my understanding of what happened. But during the court case, it came out that Special Branch had actually had intelligence that a soldier was going to be getting targeted in that area. And I think, I'm ninety-nine point nine percent sure that they had said in the court case that they weren't on, they were unable to identify that person. Now, again, you have to look at this in the call later day. That isn't like I mean, that what is exactly what would have happened because think about this for a second. Tony Harrison didn't live in Belfast. Tony Harrison didn't have sort of like um any sort of uh nobody knew that he was actually home or he was staying at his girlfriend's house other than the taxi driver because he must have picked them up a few times. I don't even think the army knew he was there. I'd say I'm got. that. And people who I spoke to recently, I spoke to somebody who was in the parachute regiment with Tony Harrison at the time, and I'm led to believe that Tony Harrison virtually just won't. And he just basically decided that he wanted to go to be with his girlfriend, and he just decided that he wasn't going to follow all the proper sort of, like, um proper procedures and, stuff, and he probably decided that he didn't want to go and get permission of the army because he probably knew it was going to get refused but long story short is that this guy thompson was actually put in a taxi depot with other people and he was in a taxi depot that was used frequently by people who actually um were soldiers based in Parks. Now, another thing which is significant about that, that same taxi driver, unknown to me, actually gave the same IRA unit, the one that I was a member of, Spud's team, information about a group of soldiers who he dropped off in Belfast City Centre, and the IRA had come up with a plan. The IRA decided to go down, they they rackied the, 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 the area, yeah, and they went into the Bolton site and they come up with a plan where they were going to drop a glass sweet jar full of sand explosives on top of the actual group of soldiers as they walked along the alley, which was actually below the scaffold. And I told Special Branch about that. And they actually acted on it to make sure that, obviously, like, that, the, that the soldiers wouldn't be there. Another thing which is even as um, important, the same taxi driver, and again unknown to me until much later with the same person who tipped off the same IRA team about the banger Charlie Hackerty's job that was going to be, and I don't even hesitate in saying this to you, yeah, the Charlie Hackerty's operation of it, how I went ahead was going to be the biggest massacre that the IRA ever carried out in its history. Period. Now, them three things all came from the same IRA intelligence officer who was a taxi driver. I was able to stop two of them. The third one couldn't be stopped for the reason they give you, was because no one knew who the soldier was, and no one could have known.
2: Tell me more about the Charlie Hegarty bar gun attack that the IRA had planned. A large number of British soldiers had been socialising there. That information had made its way back to the IRA. You passed on the information that helped stop that attack and save... Many lives, but unfortunately for you, by doing that, you left yourself completely exposed to the IRA.
3: They weren't just pretty soldiers. The reason why the IRA were so keen to actually fulfill that operation was because they were actually paratroopers, and the IRA had an absolute hatred because obviously a bloody Sunday and stuff not like that. They had a real, real hatred for paratroopers, so all those soldiers who were actually going to be the targets for that operation, were all paratroopers.
2: Why would the IRA have risked such precious information on a huge, or what would, would have been a huge operation, getting into the hands of an informant in their ranks?
3: To be honest with you, to be honest with you, I mean, even... A long time before that, they were actually suspicious of me. But they must have been so desperate for to keep the actual um, operations that they actually were, you know, had in the pipeline. They must have been so desperate, obviously, to keep it so tight that they just basically were hoping that by actually having me still on board, albeit like giving me information at the very, very last minute. That they wouldn't be able, they would be confident that I wouldn't be able to actually pass on. Because one thing I'll say to you, and I mean, and I've read this before, <clears throat> this is also significant relating to this banger job. The IRA had uh, UVF, UFF um, informants giving them information. I mean, I've known that, obviously, well, everybody knows that. Anybody who was inside the IRA, I mean, I actually prevented a bombing on the UDA headquarters when I was there back in 1990, 1991. So what happened was the IRA were getting all that information from people who were actually loyal, loyalist paramilitaries. I don't know how they've done it. It was probably maybe they thought by giving the IRA information, the IRA wouldn't target them, blah, 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 whatever. But that's what was happening. But the reason why I'm mentioning that for for this reason, at that time, yeah, I mean, everybody who was actually like, you know, working in the cell that I was in, the Spud Murphy cell, yeah. They were people who were actually sort of like I only got, I only actually got, obviously, selected for the Spud Murphy cell because Davey Adams and Brian Gillen, Gilly, who was the head of the IRM Belfast at that time, actually brought me to a meeting. I, me and Davey Adams went to a meeting with Brian Gillen. He is home in Lanadon. And Brian Gillan put my name forward to the cell for me to actually become a member of it. So what I'm saying to you is, right, that cell was so, so neatly, um sort of, it, it was so meticulously put together, yeah, they didn't want actually anybody else to be brought into. It. So they must have thought, well, if we're, suspe- if we're suspicious of somebody, they have to just say, well, look, we will give them information at the very, very last minute, i.e., what it did with Tony Harrison. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning that for, and the reason why I'm mentioning it about these loyalist informers passing information to the IRA for, was because, right, in a situation like that, right, the UVF or the UFF, they were actually starting to do what the IRA were doing. And what that meant was they were riddled with informers and agents, right? And what they started to do was the fucking loyalist paramilitaries were actually copycatting what the IRA was doing. It was becoming public knowledge because of people like me talking on TV that the IRA were bringing me into fucking meetings at the very last minute and sending me, you're going on an operation in five minutes fucking time or two minutes time. So the UVF, now watching these programs and watching them on TV, they're getting ideas and what they started to do the same thing. So if they were suspicious about somebody, they would just say, well, we think he's given information to the branch. We'll bring him in at the last minute. Tell me he's going out in a job now. He can't contact his handlers. He's going to be involved in it while he likes it or while he doesn't. And therefore, it's not going to be getting compromised. So the point I'm making to you is, right, you're fucked when you're in that situation. You're completely fucked. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are. You have to ask yourself this question. What do you do if you're actually a plump, if you're actually working against a terrorist organization and you're inside that cell, passing information to the IRA's enemy, special branch in MI5, And they decide they're going to bring you to a meeting, only to find out they're going to send you on a job. What is that person supposed to do? You can't say, oh, listen, I've got a wedding to go to, or my missus wants me in the house by six o'clock. I have to leave. You'll have to go without me. There's no rule book. So so the reason why I'm mentioning that day four was because the banger job, at that stage, there's no doubt whatsoever that Spud Murphy and the IRA as a whole definitely knew that I was passing information on. It wasn't unusual for either loyalist paramilitaries or Republican paramilitaries to actually bring people who they believed were actually suspected informants to meetings under on, on the false, false pre-
0: pre- pretense. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot.
3: As they're actually going to be really they're going to be actually sent out on a job. I'll repeat this till the, the my last breath. That banger, IRA operation, hands down, would have been the biggest massacre that the IRA ever covered it, ever carried out in the term of like um like murder of pretty soldiers, especially paratroopers. You have to look at how many people they must have killed in one IRA operation. On the banger job. My my memory, again, I have to go and check. Don't quote me on this. But my memory is it was at least 100 and, fuck me, I think it was about 150 or 200 rounds of ammunition. And they were using two AK-47s. And the two AK-47s, the two people who had the AK-47s had the magazines doubled up. So what that meant was there was 30 rounds in one of the magazines. And whenever they actually fired them 30 rounds, yeah? they switched the magazine over and they had another 30 rounds so the two gunmen who was going to go into the charlie Hackerty's bar after they had identified all the people were english accents and short haircuts they were going to be drinking with these people and then they were going to go out to the car outside take the weapons out of the boot walk in and all the people who they knew were soldiers spray them with ak-47 automatic rifles and they were going to fire 120 rounds. Now, just imagine that. 120 rounds of ammunition from AK-47, as well as a a, a burning pistol. And then when they finished that, Spud Murphy, the orders were telling them that they had to leave a bomb behind, so the emergency services couldn't tend the wounded and the dying. So what I'm saying to you is, the the best way to actually like try to to, to, to to make a comparison is to look at any other um, terrorist attacks in Northern Ireland, that the most high profile ones, and is it Long Island and stuff and all like that and stuff and all like that, and you look to see how many people was killed, and then you say to yourself, Well, what sort of weapon was used? How many rooms was fired? And then you think, well, if they fired that many rounds and the IRA team who was doing that job we're going to fire 120 rounds of ammunition. Burn the main. The gunmen. These gunmen were like really, really fucking ruthless. I mean, they were. They, they were the IRA's basically top fucking shooters. And I'm telling you now, when they were getting in there, and they knew paratrooper, 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 they were getting in there, and they weren't going to come fucking it until they'd done some pretty serious damage. That's the reason why I keep repeating this thing that that would have been the biggest massacre that the IRA ever carried out, and I mean, in its whole history, in its whole history, because of the amount of uh, firepower, the amount of ammunition they were going to dis- discharge in such a small, confined area. There's videos online of Charlie Hackerty's. It was a well-known place where all the people used to go dancing on a, a Friday and Saturday night. You go and look at the YouTube videos from that time in 1991. Do you... You see the fucking many peoples on that dance floor dancing about in Stornoway. It was going to be a massacre, and 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 the orders from the IRA commander were: if any woman try to act heroes, I'll never forget this,
2: shoot them. Those are shocking and chilling claims, Martin. And it was this proposed massacre that actually led to you getting exposed.
3: Right now, Chris, one thing I'll say to you know, I mean really, and this is me speaking, obviously with all the wealth of fucking information that I've got in my head, and all the information that I've gleaned, and all the fucking documents that I've actually obtained during the past fucking thirty years. I mean, it wasn't just the the, the um it wasn't just the fucking uh the the, the Charlie Hackerys. I think it was quite a number of things that was happening in that previous twelve months whether it was, like, Tony Harris and Charlie Hackerty's and, you know, if a bomb is planted under a car and the policeman mysteriously finds that bomb under his car, it isn't unusual, but it's suspicious. But if another policeman finds finds a bomb under his car and then another one, you know what I'm saying? So what happens is all these bombs is all getting found and stuff and all like that. And I remember Elaine in the film, I remember Elaine in the film, and it makes me laugh. Jim Sturgis is in a room with Kevin Z- Seegers and Kevin Seegers is playing Harry Fitzsimmons supposed to be and Jim Sturgis is playing me and Kevin Seegers is putting the bomb together and, 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 and I am and Jim Sturgis look at him like intently and talk, we're talking about bombs and stuff and all and and Jim Sturgis says something like oh we're going to blow up the whole city man and Kevin Seegers looks to him and says nothing ever blows up when you're around and that's exactly what it was like Nothing ever blows up when I'm around. That's the fucking truth.
2: you led a double life that you successfully kept from your partner at that time. How did you do that?
3: Well, do you know what listen it wasn't It wasn't hard because at the end of the day, as I said to you, I've always been a very, very active person. I mean I said you I mean from a very, very early age, I had jobs where fucking like you know I was up at I mean, since I was the, a young lad, I mean, I worked with Paddy Brady. I mentioned this day before, Paddy Brady was murdered by uh, Michael Stone. In fact, Paddy Brady was one of the first people that Michael Stone actually murdered. And I worked with Paddy Brady up until about maybe two years before he was murdered. And I actually will never forget. It's actually stuck in my mind's eye, obviously, to this very day. And you're talking like 40 years ago. I used to actually get up out of bed and I used to paddle through Balmer Beachmount, right down into fucking, like, you know, um the village, which is a partisan area, down into Kennedy's Dairy, where Paddy Brady used to work. And I used to put my little bake in the back of the milk float, fill the milk, float up our Paddy Brady and a couple of our helpers. And we used to go back to Wells, West Belfast, and we used to deliver people's milk. And I used to go out to do that. I used to leave the house probably about half, five, six in the morning, pitch black to paddle. I mean, it must have been at least five or fucking six or seven. Minutes. And I used to go down there and I always had jobs. I was a very active person. So the reason what I'm saying is, right, when I was with my partner at the time, I was always active doing things. So it was easy for me to go and meet fucking somebody from the special branch. It was easy for me to be able to go to meet IRA people and stuff and all like that. And it wasn't
2: unusual for me never to be in the fucking house. For most people, their partner is their most trusted, confident in life. Why didn't you tell your partner that you were working for a special branch. Was there a reason?
3: Yeah, but listen, I'll tell you one thing, Trish. I mean, your partner's probably the least person who you should fucking trust with your life when you're in that situation, because no, no disrespect to you, but know the old fucking saying, the woman's scorn and stuff and all like that. You know, when a woman falls out with a fucking man for whatever fucking reason, she's not too fucking slow <laughs> about starting to shit and you're doing this, and you're doing that. You couldn't do it.
2: Take me back to... The day that everything changed, and that is the day the IRA kidnapped you and planned to murder you.
3: It was on the 8th of August 1981, because I was getting mixed up. Because the 9th of August is interment. It was the day before interment on the 8th of August. And what happened was, the day before that, uh, fucking, the, the, the day before that, which would have been the 7th of August, I actually, someone came to my mum's house, and what they said to me was, look, You have to um, go to, like, uh, a meeting. I was told that I had to go to Conley House. Now, bear in mind, this is the the day before, so like 24 hours notice. Immediately when I got that fucking message, right, what made me even really more fucking concerned was I was told I had to go and see Padraig Wilson. Now, Padraig Wilson at that fucking time was well connected with internal security and fucking discipline prior to that. So he he wasn't no fucking sort of like um, nobody. He was like a fucking very important person within the IRA. So I had to, I was told I had to go to the Sinn Fein headquarters up in numbers Antrim. So the minute that that went, um, the the, the minute that that fucking uh, uh, the person who came to tell me actually told me that, I made my way, obviously back because at, at that time I was having a bit of a fucking um. I was having a bit of a ding-dong with my ex-missus, the one who had the two kids too, Aunt Angela. And I actually fucking had to make my way back to our house in friend. And the reason why was because I used to have a little device, special me. and it was like a little white radio, a little sort of like small compact radio. And what happened was, rather than me calling them, because, obviously, if I was seen at phone boxes and stuff and all like that, would be really, really dangerous and suspicious. I used to have to press a little button on this radio, and it sent a message through to my handlers, yeah, that we had to meet. I think it was a, within 30 minutes or one hour, and around that. And the minute I pressed that button, I started to head to the meeting place, which, again, I told you, was over basically just off um, Craigie Road and over like East Belfast. So what I did, I went and met him, and I went and met Felix who I really trusted, I said to him, look, I'm not going to go to this meeting. There's no way I'm going to go to the fucking meeting, because obviously, like, you know know what's going to happen. They knew that I was going to be getting kidnapped. I knew I was going to be getting kidnapped. Ian Phoenix, in his book, admitted in his diaries that special branch knew I was going to be getting kidnapped when I went to the meeting. But yet, fucking unbelievably, I had been told, and again i I mean, I have to stress the I mean, this may be a little bit fucking like, you know, out of sync of what I've said previously, but it's there or thereabouts. I had been told by Felix when I met him, right, that, look, don't go back to West Belfast, don't go back into Ballmerfree, blah, 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 because he was convinced that it may be some sort of like a fucking, uh, it may be some sort of like a fucking, um, a trick to make me believe I was going to go to this meeting the next day to meet Padraig Wilson. But the ira had planned to come and get me either that day or later on that night before the meeting to, you know leave me in default sense of security so he had said to me right leave it with me and he says i'm going to go back and i'm going to speak to people he said and what to do is call me this afternoon he says and whenever you call me he says I'll tell you exactly what we're going to do so long story short I'm fucking shitting myself all that day. This is the day before, twenty-four hours before, on the 7th of August 1981. And I'm running about really, really fucking thinking, fuck this, I'm not even I, I, I was I had a bit of money, right? And I was convinced. I, I was so I had convinced myself that I was actually going to get a fucking plane or a furry and I was actually gonna leave fucking Belfast and I was never gonna go back to it. I was actually frightened. So what happened was <clears throat> I contacted Felix later on that day, and he said to me, We want you to go to the meeting. I thought Are you fucking nuts? He went, no, no, listen, listen to me. We want you to go to the meeting, and we're going to fucking put surveillance on you, and we're going to follow you every step of the way. He says, so if anything happens, we're going to be there, obviously, and we'll fucking, like, we'll be on, we'll be virtually, like, there with you. And I thought to myself, fuck that, blah, blah, blah. I was sent, you know, virtually, like, to go and do my own fucking day-to-day fucking sort of, like, activities as if everything was just normal with this thing in my mind, knowing full well that I had to actually fucking go, the next morning, if I made it that long, because I was still convinced the IRA were going to come get me that day, that night. And I was fucking convinced that I was going to be fucking like kidnapped the next day and I probably would never ever fucking like, you know, see the 8th of August, the end of the day. I was so convinced they would fucking want to kidnap me, torture me murder. I fucking decided, like a dopey fucking idiot that I am, that I was gonna put my faith in the fucking special branch and I was gonna to go to this meeting on the hope that they were actually gonna come good. So the next morning, I'll never i forget this. I, I, I was actually staying at my mum's because the society me and Angela were having like a bit of rust. We we were like weren't getting on stuff and all like that. And I remember that next morning. I'm not a cuddly person, you know, like well not back then. I'm I more so now but not back then. And you know, you weren't really, really, like, that type of person. Like, you weren't really all cuddle, cuddle, kissy, kissy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And my mum ironed me a pair of jeans that morning before I left. And I remember, and it's as, it's as, it's as vivid now as it was back then, I was going to tell my mum at that that's, but at that time, you says earlier on, "Not by the Jennifer, your girlfriend." Blah blah blah. And I says, "Woman scorn." Blah blah blah. But I was so close to telling my mum exactly what I've been doing, and what I was about to do, and what the special events were going to do. I was so close to telling my mum. Yeah, and I also remember thinking, "Look, I should. I'd love to give her a little cuddle and kiss, and tell her, like, you know, you know, a love or something like that." Because I I knew that my days were like fucking numbered, and I I, I believe that it was going to be murdered. Like that day, I didn't believe I was going to see the end that day. So anyway, I left, I didn't, didn't give my mum the cuddle and I didn't tell her these things and stuff. And I wish I had of because see I had it told my mum? My mum would have told me, don't you go to the meeting and she'd have just said to me, get yourself away, get yourself away to this danger, get yourself, go anywhere. And she'd have told me, that. now I'd listened to her, but because I was listening to Special Branch, I actually stupidly, and because I trusted my honours, I went ahead with this fucking plan. And the rest is history history being what special brands told me was don't use your own car borrow a car and when you borrow a car contact us tell us the make the color the registration number so i borrowed a car of a friend of mine a guy called jim quinn who lived just like the next street and it was a little nissan cherry a little a very very um metallically light green car and i borrowed his car and Special Branch gave me instructions to say that I had to park that car up at the corner of the street where the town use was, in between the town News and also um, the Town Leisure Centre, that street that runs down the two of them. And they said there's a billboard there and there's like a little parking space for a few cars. Park it right onto the billboard there. And when you park it there, you walk across the street and you go to the Sinn Féin Centre, and my instructions were that I must not, under any circumstances, tell the IRA that I travelled there by car. Now, I didn't know what the significance of that was, but I'll explain to you in a minute, but I want to go back a little bit before I carry on. You know, because I was still so frightened and because I wasn't actually um, convinced that the special branch were actually fucking really, really like going to be watching over me and they were going to be fucking like, you know, protecting me. I decided on the way to the Sinn Féin uh, headquarters, to this meeting with Padre Wilson, that I was going to go via payphone and I was going to contact Felix. And I remember I drove down the motor bypass and I think it was the Glen Road roundabout. I took a right. And there used to be a little phone box beside a little small uh, number of shops. I think it was facing a church or a chapel or whatever. And I parked there and I went and made a call and I called. And Felix on, and, and and before I did that, I I I done anti-surveillance round and a bit, about three or four times. Now the reason why I did that for was because I thought the IRA might be following me. And when I knew I wasn't getting followed, so I thought I went and made this phone call. And I'm not joking you about, it. when I made that phone call, Felix came on the phone to me and he said to me, fucking hell, what are you doing? You're putting your head on a spin by all this fucking maneuvers going around roundabouts. And when he said that to me, I just got this sort of instant sort of uh, confidence and I was relieved because I believed at that moment, one, they're following me. Two, they couldn't have possibly known what I'd just done five, ten minutes before. And three, if they're with me, then I actually am confident enough to know that if the IRA training, I'm going to be getting rescued. So I thought, fuck it. And I just drove to that meeting with a completely new sort of uh, newfound confidence. I thought it was unprotected, protected, but the and bottom of it was. I was being used as bait. I was being used as bait. I'll just mention something to you here, which is a bit of a side issue but it's very important but what had happened was there yeah if you can imagine the special branch wouldn't have found it very easy to recruit people who would have they would regard it as good type of sources right the way they're going to get somebody who was a downright terrorist who they recruited because they were able to blackmail that person because they got them in a compromised position and that person knew that he was going to go to prison and his way of getting out of jail carb was to work for special branch through gritted teeth. He hates a special branch. He hates the establishment. He's a a fucking a, a, a seasoned terrorist and he doesn't want to fucking be basically giving information against his comrades and stuff more like that. And he's only doing it because it's his way to prison. He's never gonna be truthful to special branch, he's never gonna be truthful to the MI5, he's just doing what he has to do to keep himself out of jail. Well, what happens is, right? When you're dealing with people like that, right? They're easy to find. You can get people like that all the fucking time because they always make mistakes and they always get themselves into positions where they actually do compromise themselves. Maybe through crime, maybe through something stupid, maybe through something that's embarrassing, and maybe through just something where they just basically fucking are vulnerable for whatever reason. But what the special branch were doing in MI5 at that time, unknown to me, they were allowing people like me, alarmed to the slaughter. Walking into the fucking Land's Den. Somebody who had put four years of my fucking life. Sacrificed everything. Give my all. You couldn't have placed yourself in any more danger. I would actually say that the job that I was doing between I was 17 and 21 was perhaps one of the most dangerous jobs that anybody could have done at that time in the United Kingdom. It was one of the most dangerous jobs you could have done. And as I said to you, bring in weapons, bring in explosives, bring in all these things to Special Branch to do whatever they had to do to bring them back, blah, blah, blah. All those fucking risks and put myself basically at the mercy of MI5 and Special Branch because I believed in them, but they didn't fucking believe in me. And what happened was they basically were just using me, well, the hierarchy were using me. Here I am going to this meeting, really a kidnapping, disguised as a meeting. Special brunch are following me. But Special give aren't giving a fuck about me. What they're doing is, they know that the people who I'm going to meet are part of the IRA's notorious internal security team. Now, at that time, no one knew about Freddy's Gapitici's and stuff and all like that. No one knew about them. So what happened was, when I went there, they had surveillance on me. But the surveillance wasn't for my purpose. The surveillance was for the fucking actually... Get the people who were actually going to take me away to God knows where and the people who they were going to take me to get completely cast iron, indisputable evidence, hard evidence against them to be able to turn them into fucking informers. And I went there and I found out in 1997, and this is in the second book, Man Running. I mentioned the bloke's name is Mick, and that's an alias name. And this guy obviously met me in England, and he told me that you were not supposed to come out of that flat. A decision had been taken at the very highest level that you were just going to be basically sacrificed because he told me, and it's in. It's, it's this is before Scapatici, This is 1997. This has been in, wasn't out until 2000 and fucking two or three or whatever it was. He told me. It's in the verbatim. He told me that you were actually sacrificed because they were protecting a more senior agent in the IRA. And I've always believed now, because of what I know, that that person is possibly Freddie Scabattici. How did you feel about
2: that?
3: Do you know how I really feel about it? I feel really, really sort of um, angry with myself because... When you give somebody everything you've got, you just think to yourself, if I hadn't had jumped their that the open window, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation now. And you know the sad thing about it is, and I can say this without any hesitation, many other people who were proper agents, agents, not informers, agents, agent being in the definition, my definition of an agent is somebody who is not in any way associated are a member of a terrorist organization, but they are already an established agent for either one organ of the state or another, MI5, Special Branch of the Army, and they are actually inserted into that organization for the purpose of actually gaining intelligence and information about the workers' future operations and stuff and all, and thinking, and also what the area that terrorist organization is actually involved in, right? I believe, without doubt, even before I heard about Scapatici, because I never knew who the fuck Scapatici was, I'd never heard of him before in my life until obviously he was out in 2003 or whenever it was, or 2004. But one thing I can say to you is this, right? I honestly do believe that dozens, dozens of other agents have actually been sent to their deaths by the people MI5 and the people way up the very, very top of the command chain within the OUC and also Special Branch the people who make the fucking decisions, and I believe that they've actually been virtually sent to their deaths. If you know that you've got somebody who was doing the work that I was doing for special Branch, they're actually knowing full well that that person, without doubt, is actually going to end up dead. They know that I'm going to end up dead, or other people like me, yeah? and they know full well that not only am I going to end up dead, but the people who are actually involved, at the very least, of my abduction and interrogation, i.e. in my case, the people who have been in all along, I have always said that they were either um, informers before I actually was kidnapped or that they were actually blackmailed and in becoming uh, informers as a result of my kidnapping because of the surveillance that was gathered and the evidence that was gathered against them. But since then, it's even got more murky. I found out that the third man in the fucking flat was actually somebody who was already working for Special Branch two years before my kidnapping. So if I'm right, potentially the whole three of the people who kidnapped me were all working for one organ of the fucking um, state, either Special Branch, MI5 for the Army, and all of them were all working for them. So it's not a bit of fucking wonder that, you know, I wasn't ever going to be fucking um, rescued. And as a society I believe it's happened to so many other fucking people. That's what really makes me sick. And I believe that Nines wasn't just sort of like you know a one-off, and that's the sad reality reality about it. And to me, what they were doing was they were just squeezing someone that they got every fucking inch out of them, yeah. And then when they were completely, virtually like, um, you know, th- there's nothing more they can give, like in my sort of case, they thought fuck them to the side and let the fucking wolves just eat them, eat them, eat them alive, and that's what they done with me.
2: Take me back to that day that you walked into that room no one that you could have lost your life.
3: Bottom um, was I went to the Sinn Fein Centre, two people who I've named fucking for the past thirty years actually uh came in and told me here to see Podrick Wilson. I said yeah. They said to me, Luke Marty, he's not actually able to come here, he said, but he's told us that like you know, um he can't make it. If you want, we can take you to see him. And this is what they said to me. You can go away and come back another day. Well, when they said that to me, I thought, fuck me, this isn't that serious. So I thought, no, I'll go and see him now. Get it over with him. And we walked out of the Sinn Féin Centre. I think it's called the Busy Bee Car Park. That's what it was known to me. walk round the side, out of the Sinn Féin Centre, the house. Right turn, walk along the street a little bit, into a car park, a shopping precinct. Walked over towards a little white fiesta, four-door fiesta. I get into the back, them two's in the front. So we're driving along, and the thing that really, really fucking made me see ho, oh, oh, I'd made the biggest mistake of my life was, they actually spun, the wheels were spinning out of the actual junction, to one down this town road. And I thought, fuck me, obviously they're doing this in case they're getting followed. So what happened was they drove the whole way to Tumbrook. and I'll never forget this, as we came to Woodburn barracks, I was so close to actually trying to open the back door And jump out of the car the minute that we passed Woodburn fucking barracks. And I would have done it because I jumped out of the fucking window later on. I would have done it, don't you worry about that. But what happened was, the reason why I didn't do it for was because I thought they would have put the chain locks on in the car. And if I'd have tried to get out, then that was it, they give the game up, the game would have been away. They would have known at that minute. So I thought, no. And I also thought, I'm going to put my fucking um, hands around this cunt's not going to pass fucking uh, Woodburn, just chuck him until he stops the car. All these things were through my mind, because I knew, like I said before, I wasn't going to see the day. I believed I was going to be fucking brought into a little country fucking lane, shot a few times in the back of the head, and just left like all the other poor fuckers before me. So I goes ahead anyway, and I goes to Twinbrook. Car stops outside the flats. One of them jumps out, runs in in front. The one jumps out and says, Marty, come on, follow him. So I gets out, follows them up the stairs, goes up into the fucking uh, flat, Walks in, nobody else there, and then what happened was, the two who I was with went into the kitchen, and then they come back out with a third person, who I haven't got a clue who he was at the time, and they just said to me, Marty, provisional IRA, you're under arrest, and I thought, fucking hell.